According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me this morning, if you would, once again in Proverbs 15. We are uh, approaching the bottom of the chapter, really the final issues that come up in verses 25 through 33, all which center on home life, all which center on uh, your uh, in ha- your habitation, your residence, your dwelling, where it is that uh, we have um, our, our fellowship, our growth, our love, the things that we, uh, that we take place uh, here in the home. And so uh, we'll, we'll be back to where we picked up on this on uh, last week because we were talking about the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. And so we have the property there whereby we live. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and his faithfulness to set aside our distractions and to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we call upon you this morning once again to manifest your faithfulness, to bless your children that desire to learn your word. And Father, we thank you that uh, it's your faithfulness that makes this happen. Father, it's your Holy Spirit that opens the eyes of our understanding. It's the Holy Spirit who leads us in, uh, into the truth, into all things, even the deep things of God. And I thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit is omnipotent and able to overcome our human limitations, the uh, limitations on the part of the hearer and the limitations on the part of the speaker. So, Father, uh, be at work this morning and manifest your glory. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so as uh, we dealt with it a week ago, we were looking at point uh, 18 in the outline, which I think is slide 22. Wisdom spotlights the Lord's personal interest in houses and boundaries. Houses and boundaries, because you have the house in the first half of the poetry, the boundary in the second half of the, of the uh, poetry from 25A to 25B, and you look at both sides of the, of the poetry there, and you see the, the whole picture. So the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, uh, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. We have antithetic parallelism in this poetry, whereby the proud is put in opposition, in, in contrast to the widow. And the proud is full of himself, and the proud uh, has built this great house, and the, pr- the, the proud is full of, of his own glory and his own achievements and everything that he believes he's done, and he's very impressed with himself. But the Lord, of course, is not impressed. The Lord is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And uh, one of the things God can do, and frequently does in his discipline, is he takes that very thing you're most proud of, and that's what he rips apart. That's what he tears down. That's what he takes away from you. And so in this man's case, is his house. And uh, looking at this great house that he's built and full of himself, I can just imagine him saying something similar to what Nebuchadnezzar said when he was walking around the roof and, and glorying in, in Babylon. Uh, that's exactly what the Lord's going to do. And so really, you think this is great? You think you did this? And, uh, and of course, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. And we're going to see that this morning in, in, uh, as we move on. Of course, the opposite of the proud is the humble, and the humble is exemplified by the widow. 
somebody that uh, does not have a self-sufficient claim or somebody that can't boast in their skills or their ability or all the great things they've done. In fact, this is the, the person that's in, that's in need, that has, uh, doesn't have the husband she used to have and, and uh, is older than she used to be, aren't we all? And, uh, and really in a position whereby if, if something's going to happen, uh, particularly, you know, as this stresses with respect to the boundary, the markers, the boundary stones of her property, if she has an abusive neighbor that's going to move the property stone or that's going to take advantage of her, what's she going to do about it? You know, what, what's she going to do? You know, um, she's going to need help. She's going to need assistance. Uh, uh, from family or clan or tribe or somebody, uh, which means you either need family justice or you need you need righteousness in the land, whereby she'll have an advocate. So, all of this is to is to really draw encouragement from the fact that the Creator God of the universe, who has crafted a plan from Alpha to Omega that's encompassed all of angels and all of humanity and all of human history with every empire that's ever rise, uh, you know, risen or fallen. He's got the big picture in view, but he does never, he never loses track of the little details. He never loses track of the individual, the personal. And your home life is a part of his plan, just like the, the fall of the Roman Empire was a part of his plan. <laughs> and that just, that's staggering to me. The idea that he has the, the big picture and the small details at the same time. So wisdom does this. It spotlights the Lord's personal interest in houses and boundaries. Picking up on the concept of boundaries for the moment, we're going to get to houses and to families and the other uh, issues here shortly. But boundaries are good. Families should have boundaries. Clans, tribes, nations, they all need boundaries. And uh, they will function optimally. That is, they function best with clearly defined boundaries. When the boundaries break down, conflict rises. And that's true in any scope, in any, uh, in any uh, relationship field you want to talk about. Uh, God appoints the boundaries. He maintains the boundaries. He's free to change the boundaries as he, sees, as he sees fit. He even ends them in his sovereign will. When uh, he appoints the, uh, the appointed times of their habitation, we're told in Acts 17, 26. So boundaries are a good thing. And uh, if he is enlarging them, that's a good thing. That means he's increasing your capacity, he's showing blessing, that he views you as a larger tool for gospel information. That is, uh, that is always a blessing. If he's shrinking your boundaries, that's a mark of his displeasure. That's a mark of your discipline. That's the mark uh, that you're on that path to, uh, when you go through the cycles of divine discipline for nations in Leviticus 26, we observe that there are stages whereby your boundaries are diminished. More of your land is taken away. You lose sovereignty. Even if you have limited control over your land, you find that you're under a foreign dominion. And that's no good. That's no good at all. So all of these things are, are kept in the sovereignty of God, and we should be thankful for them. Eden was established as a possession with responsibilities and boundaries. You know, when God placed Adam in the garden, it's because that's where he wanted Adam to be. And Adam had responsibilities in that garden. He was placed there, but it was given to him as a possession. When God gives you a possession, then he gives you the sovereignty over that possession. That's the idea of owning something. And the idea of owning what God gives you and exercising your delegated responsibility is not tyranny. It's not uh, rebellion. It, in fact, just the opposite. When you deny God's sovereignty and God's authority, then you're living in open rebellion against the plan of God. 
And so uh, these are these are important principles. And uh, and then, of course, he linguistically enforced them in the aftermath of Babel. And as we were running out of time last week, we were looking at the Tower of Babel, and we saw the efforts after the flood to not be dispersed, to not spread out, to not fill the earth, but to rather uh, build a city and to build a tower that could uh, reach into heaven was their goal. And so God put an end to it. And he, uh, he created the languages, and he scattered them abroad across the face of the whole planet. And uh, it's been like that ever since until, really, modern times now where we have come to the point now with global tra- uh, travel and transportation, communication, and uh, the capacity that we have for, uh, for language translations and so forth. And really, the, the role now that the English language has in global business and commerce and communication, you realize that all aircraft has to, uh, takes place in the English language. Every pilot flies uh, all the radio control traffic for aircraft globally is English, all right? Computer uh, communications, business, all of that is done in English. And so it's curious to me as we're seeing the undoing of Babel before our eyes, and of course the United Nations desire for global government and all of this other stuff, that uh, I believe we're headed for the, the second advent of Jesus Christ, that this is all paving the way for Antichrist and his uh, mark of the beast and all the the global economy that's going to happen there. All right. Anyway, that's where we were winding down last week. We also talked about uh, how things were legally processed and identified with boundaries, with deeds that were transferred in full witnesses as a, uh, as a legal proceeding. Let's grab this real quick. Genesis twenty three seventeen, And I think this is useful. And we still do the same thing today. We have title companies, we have notary publics, we have legal documents as they're signed, we have things that are filed with uh, the county or the state, depending on what you're, what you're doing. And the, uh, the governmental authorities are maintaining custody of the, of the legal documents. And if you want a notarized copy, you can do that, but everything is legally maintained. So Genesis 23, 17 uh, Abraham needed a, a place to bury Sarah. And so uh, Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were uh, within the confines of its borders. I mean, that almost sounds like a modern real estate contract today, right? You got the boundaries of the land, you got m- uh, mention of the trees, uh, plus the cave. I expect if he wanted to dig for mineral rights, he had those too. Um, they were deeded over. They were deeded over uh, to Abraham for possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. And so the clans are involved. It's in public view. They, they, uh, they're doing this as an official public function. It is deeded over as a legal document, as a contract. So uh, the sons of Heth here are releasing their claim. Anyone else in the clan has to release their claim. And this is what's happening. Before all who went in at the gate of the city, the gates, uh, that's where the business took place, where the legal functions took place. And so after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Ham. 
And this is one of the, the aspects of liberty. When you rank nations around the world or, or states within nations, when you rank uh, freedom, the freedom index, what, you, what, what you're ra- uh, ranking then is the legitimacy of true government and whether or not they are fair, whether or not they are legal, whether or not that they, they serve as an appropriate judicial arbiter over legal disputes. See, whereby if, if, uh, if I have a claim against the previous owner or somebody else comes along and says they have a claim against me, well, we're going to resolve it legally and we have a government agency that serves as the, as the mediator, as the arbiter, and that's done legally. You know how many places in the world don't have any of that? Where it's, you know, the, the authority of a gun, <laughs> might makes right. And, uh, and if you want to enforce your, your claim, you grab your clan and your tribe and you're going to war against the other clan and the other tribe. And once you, you know, kill everybody that's bothering you, then no one else bothers you and you have your title deed to your, to your property. Okay. But the problem with that, can we all agree that that's a less than ideal way to handle uh, conflict? Um, that God designed marriage, family, nationalism to be able to resolve these things. And, and this is a, a beautiful design. And it actually emulates God's own operations because God, when he makes covenant pro, uh, promises like to Abraham and David in the new covenant, when he makes covenant promises, he uses the very same language where it's, it's in terms of a contract or a treaty or a covenant or a testament. And so everything that we do or we should be doing ideally as, as civilized nations is really a reflection of God's own glory. And it's, it's, a, it's a thrill to me to be able to, to do this. And so, anyway, all of these things, these are legitimate functions of government and why we pay taxes and support these endeavors because uh, it's really simpler than maintaining a standing army and, and, uh, and doing that. All right. And so we see it here. Deuteronomy 19.14 is another example of this. Deuteronomy 19.14. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, you get a little shady and you move it over and you try to score some extra land that way. Well, time for to do another site survey and get it it filed with the county tax assessor's office. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance... Uh, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. And so if you're, if you're monkeying with the land, that's God doesn't hold to that because that's part of his eternal covenant with Israel. It's land, seed, and blessing. And it's a big deal. Not just a property dispute. It's an attack against the covenant nature of God and his program for Israel. goes on by, this is a great chapter too, by the way. It says uh, you don't make a big case out of a single witness in verse 15. <laughs> A single witness, wow, that's almost right out of the news, isn't it? One person with no evidence shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity. So you've got to have two or three witnesses, and matters shall be confirmed. And if you try to name witnesses and they say, no, no, we didn't witness that, well, then you're still at zero, okay? And if you name four, and all four say, oh, no, no, we didn't, we didn't see that. Then you're still at zero. We need two or three witnesses here before we can proceed on a legal basis. And then a malicious witness, a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing. Well, then 
the punishment for perjury is uh, the exact punishment that you were expecting your victim was going to receive. So if you're accusing them of murder and you were hoping that your victim was going to get the death penalty for murder, you get the death penalty. Or you're accusing them of rape and your opponent would have gotten the death penalty for rape, then your punishment for perjury is the death penalty. And that really cuts down on your perjurers when you start executing your perjurers. That uh, word gets around pretty quickly. And so, and it says that here. It says in verse 20, uh, verse 19, you will purge the evil from among you and the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. And uh, there's no pity here. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And that's the nature of uh, Mosaic law. All right. Boundaries are good. Boundaries are uh, very good. Israel experienced a number of border conflicts en route to their own national settlement. And I think God allowed them to do this. I, I believe this was a part of their learning process on the journey from Egypt to Canaan. I think uh, they, they, God deliberately brought them through uh, these, these border issues so that this doctrine could be reinforced so that when they settled in their own land, then they would appreciate the, uh, the value that borders have and the need for border enforcement. And so um, I think this is... Uh, this is important too. Let's look at Numbers chapter 20. Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've got to back up now. I was in Deuteronomy. Now let's go to Numbers chapter 20. All right. Numbers chapter 20. Starts with the death of Miriam, then it's got the waters of Meribah, then uh, verse 14. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Now, do you remember who Edom is? Edom is the twin brother of Jacob. Jacob uh, and Esau were the twins. Jacob is the, the forefather of Israel. The twelve tribes of Jacob are the twelve tribes of Israel. Edom is, is, is Esau. That's the, the 12 tribes of Edom, becomes the, becomes the, the nation of Edom. And so, uh, really, it's a twin nation. Now, they're not Jewish, but they are Abrahamic, and they are descended of Isaac, right? They're not from Ishmael. All the Ishmaelites are Abrahamic, but Edom is not Ishmaelite. Isaac and Ishmael? Isaac is the forefather of Edom. And so, essentially, with the Edomites, you have all of the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of promise that are not descendants of Jacob. And so Moses even calls him a brother. It says, thus, your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt and we stayed in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of, of your territory, that is, on the border. Please let us pass through your land. So if you don't get permission, what is that? Trespassing. <laughs> All right. Let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will uh, go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or the left, until we pass through your territory. 
And so this is a, a, a request. I don't find it a very reasonable request that, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking an entire nation walking through your nation. Um, but they're promising no harm. And they're promising not to harm field. They're promising not to damage crops. They're promising not to plunder, you know, not even so much as a, as, as a drink of water from the well. Seems reasonable. And, uh, well... Uh, Edom, however, said to him, no, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with a sword against you. Okay, so there it is. Now, what do we learn from this? What should we find from this? You know, some neighbors are reasonable. Some neighbors are not reasonable. And you make a request. Do they have to say yes, even if it's reasonable? Of course not. It's their property. It's their nation. And uh, I can... Totally understand why they would be scared. They saw, you know, there were plagues that devastated the Egyptians. <laughs> so they say, no, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with a sword against you. In other words, if someone's going to cross your border, you've got the right to tell them, no, don't cross my border. And so uh, they say, no. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. And if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. And so, you know, your border is only as good as your willingness to defend it. And uh, if you're not going to defend it, then anyone who wants to can just walk through. But Edom here says no. And so they come out with a heavy uh, force and a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. And in in a lot of ways, of course, this was prophesied that that Edom was driven away when Abraham uh, told, uh, you know, they were, uh, not Abraham, but when the twins uh, were growing up, that the older would serve the younger and that he would be a wild man living to the east of his brother and uh, that there was going to be hostility and conflict. That continued, by the way, for the whole of the Old Testament and even in between the Testaments. And there was friction between Jews and Edomites even into Bible times. And that friction was made even worse when the the Romans didn't know any better. And they took an Edomite named Herod and they said, okay, you can be king of the Jews. You know, what gave the Romans the, the bright idea that the Jews would like having an Edomite for their king? Okay, so trouble by the time, of course, Jesus comes along. Anyway, so Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. And when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. All right, I don't know why I said go through verse 23. Oh, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, and this is when uh, Aaron's going to die now. And, and it's interesting because um, the Lord actually kind of instructed uh, Moses that uh, they're not going to go to war against Edom. Don't go to war against Edom. He's your brother. And so it's an interesting thing there. All right. Uh, next chapter, chapter 21. And uh, now they're going to walk the long way around. <laughs> and uh, verse 21 now. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. Well, that's, again, sounds reasonable. Sounds familiar. Sounds reasonable. 
But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Now this is more extreme than what Edom did. Edom said, no, you cannot pass. They got their men together, but there was no war. God had already warned Moses, don't fight against Edom. He's your brother. You know, you can walk around. But now Sihon, not only does Sihon deny them safe passage, but he actually flat out attacks them. So Israel struck him with the edge of the sword, and look what happens. (laughs) Took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the uh, sons of Ammon. For the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. And so uh, now we have a, a change of ownership. Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all her villages, For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. So before it was Amorite land, before that it had been Moabite land. But you notice it had been taken. It had been taken. So, um, very common in the ancient world. In fact, even until modern times. It was only in the 20th century that the United Nations decided to become friendly and pass a law that said no territory can, can be acquired by conquest. That, uh, that's now illegal under international law. Even though it has been the practice forever. All right. But now we're, we're past that. We don't take land anymore. That's, we're, we're modern now. But this is what they were doing. All right. So now they took the land. And now who has permission to walk through the land? Well, it's our land. <laughs> All right. So just fair warning, if people are coming across your boundaries and you don't want them coming across your boundaries, but you let them come across your boundaries, they may decide it's their land now because they're here. Just, just saying. All right. And, uh, and by the way, Europe is so overrun at the moment, and this is where it's really going to come down to it. And it's because uh, they have no intention of becoming Europeans. They want to take Islam and, and, and Sharia everywhere they go. So that's the issue there. And I think um, these are lessons. These are lessons that Israel is learning on the way to their own national settlement. Because what's going to happen, he's going to bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, and they're going to settle. The tribes are going to be apportioned. And what's going to happen? He's going to give them their boundaries. And uh, with all these lessons having been learned en route to the promised land, it's going to be important for them. They're going to have their internal tribal boundaries, and then they're going to have their external national boundaries. And uh, these are all the lessons that they need to learn. Exodus 20, verses 20 through 33. And so um, Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and the people are terrified. Um, The people perceived the thunder and the lightning in verse 18 and the sound of a trumpet and the mountain was smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And so um, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Uh, You know, some people are just terrified of what the word of God's all about, what God might say. 
So Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So give up on the being scared fear and get the reverent fear and listen to what the Lord has to say. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel. Um, I'm thinking this is the wrong passage because I can't go down through verse 33. This chapter ends in verse 26. Ah, it does say chapter 23. Thank you. Exodus 23. I was reading the wrong chapter. And this chapter does have 33 verses. And this chapter is about borders. All right. Exodus 23. Conquest. And uh, keep in mind, this is uh, illegal under... Uh, United Nations Charter. Uh, but uh, this is what God is telling them to do. God has sovereignty over appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In fact, God gave the uh, inhabitants of the land an extra 400 years to repent. And he says the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And he gave them time and they did not repent. And so their national destruction was was now scheduled. And Israel is the instrument of the Amorite national destruction. So, behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. This is the sovereignty of God that is in charge of their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Their times are over. Their boundaries are gone. Their land is now being given to Israel. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in in pieces. See, in spite of the 400 years of repentance time, they're still idol worshipers. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will remove sickness from your midst. Now notice, when a nation is obedient to the will of God, when they're humble before Bible teaching, there's a health benefit to that. There's a public health benefit. I will bless your bread and your water. How about that? The food supply is blessed as a consequence of spiritual obedience to the word of God. And your water, I will remove sickness from your midst. Wow. I've yet to see a press release from the Center for Disease Control that uh, that would gives a recommendation to Americans to uh, put away their sin and to uh, to be obedient to the Word of God. But if our nation was to put away our sin and be obedient to the Word of God, I believe the Centers for Disease Control would not understand why all these epidemics are going away. Why is it that all these rates are decreasing instead of increasing when they've been increasing in recent years? Well, here it is. All right. 
There shall be uh, no one miscarrying or barren in your land. Look at that. Infant mortality and the fertility rates and all of these things. Part of God's sovereignty and blessing a nation obedient to the word of God. I will fulfill the number of your days. So that's uh, lifespan. That's length of life. That's the increase on the, on the uh, population, which was decreasing, by the way, uh, in recent years. And I'm curious to see if there's, a, if there's a turnaround on that. Verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. It's a part of preparing the battlefield spiritually so that, uh, because, I mean, they were all demoniacs. There were, there were giants in the land. There were demoniacs in the land. They, had, uh, they were pretty brave until their demons disappeared. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, ooh, where'd our demons go? And, uh, yeah, you can imagine how puny they must have felt after that. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. But I will not drive them out before you in a single year. There's a problem if you take too much land too quickly. So a little bit here, a little bit there. In God's wisdom. See, the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. If he has an utter depopulation too quickly, then that means that Israel can't migrate in place in time and can't get settled in time because uh, then the land uh, is given over to the beasts and, and so forth. Pretty smart on God's part here. And so when, when uh, Joshua leads the conquest and they entered in and then they conquered the southern region and they conquered the northern region and this thing, it was done on an appropriate calendar and schedule according to God's wisdom. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. You know, he promised them when he took them out of Egypt that they were going to conquer seven nations, each one greater and mightier than themselves. I mean, that's not normal. <laughs> that's not even, I mean, that's a miracle. If a nation can, you know, if you're going to go to war and, and the, the nation you're going up against is greater and mightier than you, they field a larger army than you can field, that's, that's not a war you're going to enter into with a whole lot of uh, excitement or a whole lot of uh, expectations. In fact, you may enter into that war thinking, why are we doing this? They're greater than us. They're mightier than us. How are we going to win this? It's probably smarter if we could maybe bargain or sue for peace or pay uh, kind of a tribute if they don't attack us kind of a thing. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's just one nation greater and mightier than you. You want to go up against two nations where both of them are greater and mightier than you? Or three nations where all three of them, each one of them? How about seven? Seven nations, each of them greater and mightier than Israel. Okay? And the Lord says, yep, and you're going to win. And you're going to win. That's what the conquest was about. All right. Which, by the way, all of that argues for the lower number, not the larger number, uh, when you examine the text discrepancies and the numbers. It was not 3 million Israelites coming out. It was 70,000 that came out, and their equivalent uh, soldiers were uh, a fraction of that. All right, so little by little, little by little. And then, when you get there, what's going to happen? I will fix your boundary. First thing, you get settled. You, uh, you're inhabiting your new dwellings, 
and you fix your boundaries. From the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. And this is a part of the Abrahamic land grant. It was first promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. As far as that goes. Now, this is uh, an interesting chapter and and modern skeptics hate it. And in fact, critics uh, call God the bloodthirsty God of genocide and so forth. Well, by the way, drive them out doesn't mean kill them all. They're free to flee. They're free to depart. They can go to their neighbors. In fact, the Hittites had, had territory beyond these boundaries. So Hittites could have fled to other Hittite lands. Amorites could have fled to other Amorite lands. It's only if they insist on staying where their boundaries have been removed that uh, if they want to stay and fight, they can stay and die. If they want to flee, they can flee. And that's, uh, that's their choice related to that. All right. Boundaries. Boundaries are good. Numbers 34. Numbers 34. Verses 1 through 12. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan according to its borders. And and look how precise this is. All right. And if a lot of this detail is lost to us today because it's kind of guesswork 3,000 years later to find some of these places. But your southern sector shall extend from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom. Your southern border shall extend from the end of the Salt Sea eastward. Then your border shall turn direction from the south to the ascent of Akrabim and continue to Zin. And its termination shall be to the south of Kadesh Barnea. And it shall reach Hazaradar and continue to Asmon. That's why pastors avoid this chapter. It's just hard to read these things. All right. But notice how precise it is. And notice how detailed it is. And notice that rivers and mountains and places, they have proper names so that they are identified. And the names can change through the years, but at the time that it happens, these are the names they have now, and these are the names that are identified. These are the names that are agreed to, because whatever you fix your boundary at, your neighbor on the other side has to agree, right? <laughs> He's got to say, yep, that's the border. I'm good with that. All right. Because if, if you say the border is here, say the Red River, or say the, the Rio Grande, and your neighbor says, oh, no, 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 the river is here, and, and picks a different river like the Guadalupe, okay? Mexico wanted the river to be the Guadalupe River, and Texas said, no, the border's going to be the Rio Grande. Well, that's a, that's a big difference. And the, all that land in between there is now in dispute. So we've got to agree, and we've got to name this river. Anyway, that's what the Lord's doing here. And so, um, yeah, I don't think we have to read this whole thing. So uh, down through verse 12, the border shall go down to the Jordan and its termination shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land uh, according to its borders 
all around. So there's all the details. And uh, sometimes you're drawing these imaginary lines. Uh, like in verse 8, you shall draw a line from Mount Hor to the Lebo Hamath, and the termination of the border shall be at Zedad. Okay? And so, what's wrong with drawing lines? You can draw lines. God draws lines. Draw a line. That's your border. And uh, there you go. After the conquest, Israel was established as 12 tribal possessions. This is subpoint E. After the conquest, Israel was established as 12 tribal possessions with responsibilities and boundaries. And you talk about reading. How about Joshua chapter 13 through 19? <laughs> okay. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Seven full chapters there in, in Joshua whereby each of the tribes now is, is charting out their boundaries so that they don't have tribal conflict amongst themselves. After the conquest, Israel was established as 12 tribal possessions with responsibilities and boundaries. I, don't know, I, I think this is a useful study. It's a useful study, I think, for what it shows and what it doesn't show. I think it also uh, exposes a lot of bad doctrine on the part of replacement theology and different people that want to believe that we are now the church replaces Israel. The church is now the uh, recipients of all God's covenant blessings and all of this and so forth. And it just makes me scratch my head and say, well, really? Well, I don't see you moving to the promised land. What, what, what aspect of the land grant are you going to claim for yourself too? All right. So, oh, well, you know, I don't see them signing up for that or going to go live over there where uh, all the conflict's still happening to this day. I mean, if you're, if you're taking the covenant, take the covenant. You know, don't be a hypocrite about it. Or do something halfway. Go live in the land grant. If you're saying it's yours now, it's curious to me. And so this reality is a stark contrast with the church reality of our habitation. You understand our habitation? We don't have the land grants in, as believer priests in the church age that the nations were given in the Old Testament, that Israel is given for all eternity. Our citizenship is in heaven. And our habitation is in heaven. In fact, we are being built as a habitation. How powerful is that? Ephesians 2.22. And this is why I think we can, uh, we should be, um, our attention should be focused on the things above. We, when we live here on the earth, it's as aliens and strangers. We're just passing through. This world is not our home. So, um, Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. This is, this is our topic tonight as we start the final paragraph of, of uh, Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And uh, we see this presented here as well. We are citizens and God's household. This is the royal family of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling, that's a habitation, a dwelling of God in the Spirit, or by the Spirit. So this is our role as church-age believer priests. What a contrast. What a contrast. So, uh, you know, we, uh, 
We can watch current events. We can pay attention to politics. I think we should. I think we should be salt and light. I believe we should be a blessing to our neighbor. I believe we should love our neighbor. I believe if we can impact our community and our state and our nation uh, by standing for truth, then that's going to be a blessing. And all of those things are great. But at the same time, as we observe other issues and we observe problems and so forth, we recognize that it's not the be-all and end-all. We're not, you know, our, our life doesn't rise and fall with politics, that, uh, that we are aliens and strangers, and that this world is not our home. And that, sadly, once the church is, uh, is raptured out of here anyway, and the whole world goes apostate, um, the, 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 the country that I love is going to be siding against Israel. The, uh, the stars and stripes are going to be uh, lined up with every other nation against Israel. That Israel will stand alone against the whole world, against Antichrist and the whole world. How sad is that? Okay. So, uh, as far as that goes, assuming, of course, that our nation still exists by that point in time. Because we can, we can be gone tomorrow. God can end us tomorrow. That's his good pleasure. All right. The ending now of Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 closes with a series of maxims on the blessings of humble community. The blessings of humble community. That's how I'm calling this. And it's taking all of these principles of wisdom, personal and public wisdom, and it's showing that the home, the house, the boundaries, the home now is the place of humble community. And we're going to see this. In fact, the the chapter ends with, before honor comes humility. And uh, I think as we look through verses 25 through 33, uh, we're going to notice a home, home life, uh, family context for, uh, for each of these things. We've already talked about building a house and establishing the boundary. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's a home uh, context. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure, as verse 26 Read those words and understand that poetry, but understand it within a context of family and home life. Do we have family plans? Do we have family words? Do we have family meetings? Do we, uh, are, are those words pleasant or are those words wicked? So planning and uh, speaking, what a blessing. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house. So, uh, you know... <laughs> You, uh, you found a get-rich-quick scheme. You found a way you could make some money on the side. You found a way that you could, uh, uh, you know, wasn't exactly legal, but hey, what, what harm does it do? Well, you just got caught. You just got sent to prison. Now what are your wife and kids going to do? Uh, do you think it has impact in your house? Of course. You will uh, trouble his own house. But he who hates bribes will live. The family blessings for... Uh, conducting your business affairs with integrity. He who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And of course, this is true in public. This is true in daily life. This is true in every context. But since this context appears to be within the household, within the boundaries, within the family, how much more significant does it get there? How do I give a right answer? How do, I, uh, how do I speak here? And in some cases, your family is the hardest people to talk to. <laughs> they should be the easiest people to talk to. 
And yet, you find that uh, if you were dealing with a, you know, if you were dealing with a business partner or whatever, you were dealing with a contract. Uh, if you were dealing, I'm trying to illustrate here. If um, sometimes it's easier to say the tough thing to a stranger. Sometimes it's easier to fire a contractor if uh, if you're paying them. And saying, you know what, this is this is just unacceptable, and uh, I think I need to find another whatever, and uh, you know, um, we're done, go away, <laughs> kind of a thing. Well, you can't do that with a family member. You can't say we're done, go away. They live there, all right. This is your your wife, your husband, your you know whatever, your son, and so forth. So, how do I give an answer here? Because I want to give a right answer, and I don't want out of my mouth to pour forth evil things. Uh, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. That's true in a public setting, in a private setting, but it's very true in a home setting within a family operation. Uh, Is this a home where the Lord is near? Is this a home where the uh, the Lord is far? Is this a home of prayer or is this a home of wickedness? Bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. Of course, that's true in any context, public and private, but it's very true in a home family context, whereby good news is good news for everybody. Bad news is bad news for everybody, as, uh, because it affects the entire house. It affects uh, when, when, when a good report comes in, the entire household will have the bright eyes that are gladdened. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. What a blessing when you've got a household of believers and everyone is delighted to be in Bible class and everyone is delighted to be learning the Word of God. And you can have conversations around Scripture passages and you can discuss Bible verses at the dinner table. But uh, what, what if that's not there? What if you've got family members or you've got a, family, a home life and um, Bible discussions are not pleasant? And, uh, and so it just gets confrontational. It gets, well, quit talking about that all the time. And, and so they want to talk politics all the time or sports or the weather or whatever. You know, okay. But seriously, is that, is that all we're going to talk about? Uh, he who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. And what a venue the family venue where that discipline can take place and the reproof can take place because the people who love you well enough love you enough to tell you, this is wrong, cut it out. This is, uh, this is contrary to Scripture, knock it off. What are you doing? And so there's family discipline that takes place. And isn't that interesting how God established those boundaries? And God established, and when you think about it, each one of those realms of, of the laws of divine establishment, from, from individual volition to marriage, to family, to nations. And each one of those realms has its own internal uh, authority, its own internal discipline, its own authority, uh, its own internal means of rectifying issues. (laughs) And if somebody from outside comes in and wants to tell you how to do that, uh, not only is that wrong, it's unbiblical when it comes right down to it. As far as uh, telling you how to run your marriage, telling parents how to raise their children, telling you how to think, that's your personal volition domain. You have freedom of conscience. You have your own soul before the Lord. 
And you can't be forced to worship a certain way, to think a certain thing. Um, thought control is not the government's realm to, to tell you how to think. And so volition, marriage, why, why does the state think it has authority to define marriage? Marriage is a separate institution from the state. If we have separation of church and state, we should also have separation of marriage and state. It's a different realm. And it does not take a village to raise your kids. It takes parents. All right. Anyway, so when you have all those realms, and which one gets the sword? <laughs> the state. The state gets the sword, yeah. We don't have... Uh, uh, families don't have the sword. We have the rod for disciplining the children, but we don't have the sword for uh, inflicting wrath upon our neighbor, doing a, a clan war against the, the clan next door, okay? State gets the sword, not the, not the family, not the marriage, not the, uh, not the individual. All right. Uh, and then finally, uh, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. Before honor comes humility. And uh, to wrap this up, I think in a family context or in a household context is interesting. Uh, shouldn't the household be a venue for exaltation? Shouldn't it be a venue for honor? Shouldn't it be a venue whereby we recognize one another's achievements, whereby um, you know, we celebrate when, uh, when uh, a sibling uh, you know, has a great thing happen, they land a role, a, a leading role in the play production or whatever, uh, then that's a, a thing to celebrate or they get a promotion at work or they get, you know, a good thing happens. We celebrate the good things that happen. We honor one another in the grace of God in one another's life. Well, before that has to come humility and uh, we, we nurture these things in the home. All right, so we start off. Let's, uh, let's just kind of, a, I've got sub points A and through E and we're going to have more by the time we get done. It's probably going to end up being F, G, and H by the time we get done. Um, but this is what we'll pick up next week. Um, we're going to talk about these home-building endeavors. They must include the Lord. Home-building endeavors must include the Lord. Because, yeah, we already saw he, He's perfectly capable of tearing things down. And He very frequently does tear things down. So uh, we should be in the building business, but if he's tearing down, we've got to realize, well, why is that happening? And why am I trying to build when the Lord's tearing it down? Why am I trying to build without the Lord anyway? And that's uh, the very famous Psalm 127, 1. If the Lord, unless the Lord builds a house, the labor in vain who build it. And, uh, you know, the watchman can stay awake in vain if, uh, if the Lord's against what you're doing there. All right, so we'll pick that up next week. We'll talk about, uh, yeah, let's just stop it here. I've got two minutes left, but I don't want to get into this. We'll pick this up next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for um, the grace that let this Bible class get taught. Father, uh, just thank you and praise you for all that you continue to do. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. amen.